Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. The atmosphere is being filled with more and more types of pollutants, but how do you get it out of the air? Now, there's a lot of interesting chemistry going on in our atmosphere that helps take pollution out of the air and sequester it. And trees are also doing a similar thing. So we look at the chemistry inside our atmosphere, how polluted can get taken out, and which trees are best at cleaning our air. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. Now, humans are responsible for filling our atmosphere on our planet with all kinds of pollutants. You can see it from simple things like the burning of logs on a fire, through to way more advanced and complicated forms of industrial pollution. Nevertheless, for thousands of years and getting worse and worse, we've been spewing out things into the atmosphere. Now, human activities result in all kinds of these strange pollutants, but the Earth has ways, though limited as they are, of dealing with this pollution. A simple example, of course, you can think of is trees. We breathe out carbon dioxide and Trees take in, or plants in general, take in that carbon dioxide and use it for photosynthesis to produce oxygen, which we then feed on. That's kind of a mutually beneficial arrangement between plants and organisms. There are many other kinds of these things in the animal kingdom, or nature effectively, but when we talk about geology, it's a bit more complicated because, well, who wants a whole bunch of hydroxide? Or rather, who wants a whole bunch of all types of industrial pollutants? Now, the molecule hydroxide, OH, actually has a pretty important role to play in the geochemistry of our planet and atmosphere. Because without hydroxide being present, well, many of the pollutants that we are regularly spewing out there would build up and build up in our atmosphere, with nothing there to cleanse them away, or at least reduce them somewhat. Research into this topic has been published in the Procedure of the National Academy of Sciences by researchers from University of California, Irvine, including lead director on this paper, Professor Sergei Niskorodov from the university, who've been studying ways that our atmosphere, and in particular water droplets in our air, can actually create hydroxide. And this has a pretty unknown and strange mechanism, because our atmosphere is regularly cleaning itself of all kinds of humid limited pollutants, like greenhouse gases. Now, you need things like hydroxide if you want to try and break down hydrocarbons. If you didn't have hydroxide present in our atmosphere, well, those hydrocarbons would build up indefinitely. So on a fundamental chemistry level, it's really important for helping break down airborne pollutants and remove other kinds of noxious chemicals, things like sulfur dioxide and nitric oxide. These are poisonous gases that can be found in our atmosphere. But the fact is they're not dominating all of our atmosphere is to do to this complicated chemistry that is taking place. So it's not that the Earth is magically going to clean up our mess for us. That's not practical because we're way exceeding its capacity. But it does exist some level of atmospheric chemistry that helps break down gases and so on that spew out into it. If there wasn't, then there would be no way for life to have formed on our planet in the first place, because things like volcanic eruptions and others can produce all kinds of nasty gases.
Now, hydroxide is really important when it comes to atmospheric chemistry because it helps break down ebb pollutants and take those noxious chemicals, sulfur dioxide and nitric oxide, out of our atmosphere. But we need to understand how it's produced and the sources and sinks because if we don't understand the way in which the atmospheric chemistry is working, then we can't really have a very good model for understanding and predicting the way in which we're going to disrupt that model by dumping way more pollution into it than it can possibly deal with. Now, the conventional wisdom, being as Nick Scott points out, if you want to make hydroxide, then you can do it with photochemistry or redox chemistry. You have to have something like sunlight or metals present acting as a catalyst. Now, what they have discovered, though, is you can actually create hydroxide without any of those fancy catalysts at all. In fact, you can just use pure water itself. Now, hydroxide can be spontaneously created when you have the right special conditions on the surface of droplets. And that's what they've been investigating and outlined in this particular paper. It builds on prior work by researchers from Stanford University by Richard Zare identify that you could spontaneously form hydrogen peroxide on the surface of water droplets. And with that as a clue, the researchers turn their attention to other things that you could form on the surface of droplets, because our atmosphere is full of all kinds of water droplets and vapour. And so it's actually pretty common that you'll have huge, huge numbers of them, and you don't need a lot of them to spontaneously form enough, just enough, to be able to create enough of a sink using this chemical production method. Now, the team measured hydroxide concentrations in different vials, some of them containing an air-water mix and others containing only water without any air. And then they watched and tracked hydroxide production in darkness by including a probe molecule in the vial. This probe molecule actually fluoresces when it reacts with hydroxide. So as soon as some hydroxide was formed, they would get a visual clue, an indicator that something had happened. In the two vials, one with air water and one with just water. And what they saw is that when you left those vials in darkness, you would see the same rate, or more actually, than those which have direct sunlight exposure. Enough hydroxide will be created to compete with other known hydroxide sources. And at night, when there's no photochemistry, the OH is still produced and sometimes even at a higher rate than you would expect if it was based on photochemistry, sunlight as the triggering source. Now, this is pretty confusing for the scientists because photochemistry or redox chemistry, as we mentioned, is pretty much the main way they thought that this spontaneous production was happening. But if you're able to produce just as much or more of this hydroxide in darkness, well, you can't really be relying on photochemistry for that trigger. And all of this helps change the models of air pollution quite significantly because hydroxide is an important oxygen inside water droplets. And this main assumption in a lot of our atmospheric air pollution models is that the OH comes from the air and not by the droplet directly. If this actually is coming from, and a lot of it from the droplet, then that changes the way in which those droplets play a role in the dissolution of now, this spontaneous production of O2 isn't really proven to be a major model in our climate models just yet, but it's certainly possible. Now, this is a pretty exciting and new area of study. As I talked about before, there's a couple of papers looking at the way different types of chemicals can be spontaneously formed in water droplets and on the surfaces of them. 
and there are just so many of them in our atmosphere that it's really hard to get your head around, and they play a small but incredibly complicated role in our atmospheric models. So, whilst humans are polluting our atmosphere more and more, we need to understand exactly the way that the atmosphere and all the tiny things that make up it actually behave if we want to get a better understanding of predicting exactly how it's going to change. This is a really interesting study published in the Presidium of the National Academy of Science with principal investigator of this study, Sergei Niskorov, along with leader of this paper, Kanwei Lee, and many others from University of California, Irvine. Now, we just talked about the ways that things can be in our atmosphere helping clean it up. We talked about the way specific water chemistry in droplets of water can help take toxic chemicals out of the air, and the way that mechanism, the complex geochemistry of it, is poorly understood. But what is reasonably understood, as alluded to earlier, is the fact that trees are pretty helpful at cleaning up the air. As long as they can survive the environment they're planted in, trees can deal with a lot of CO2 and produce oxygen. Now, planting trees is not a solution to climate change because the numbers you would need far outweigh the resources you would require to keep them up. But trees can also help not just with giving us oxygen, they can also cool the environment around them. Particularly if you plant trees in an urban setting, they can help reduce the heat load. That's a pretty important thing we've talked about here on the podcast before. The ways in which urban trees and greenery can help reduce the thermal mass of an area and thus reduce the amount of cooling required on extreme weather days. Now, that's one of the best events of urban trees, along with, of course, providing an ecosystem and an habitat for those trees to survive. But not all trees are created equal, and not all trees are really good at another thing that's incredibly important, particularly for urban trees. If you want to have a tree, in an urban environment, it generally will get exposed to all kinds of air pollutants, whether that be car exhaust, diesel fumes, or more industrial. Now, these type of trees and greeneries, they can provide important benefits, not just cooling ones, but also help actually take some of the pollutants out of the air. Now, if that's the case, what tree should you plant in an urban setting to best maximize your chance of having clean air. That's exactly what researchers from the University of Gothenburg have been investigating, with lead author on this paper, Plagel, Hakan Plagel, along with Jenna Klinkenberg and others from the University of Gothenburg, published in the journal Ecological Indicators, about ways in which different types of trees are actually better suited for greening up our atmosphere. Now, if you want to think about different types of trees, you obviously have varieties like conifers. Now, conifers are pretty well known, things like spruce, juniper, cedar, and pine, but they are often better performers in the form of a shrub or in the form of a tall tree like a sequoia redwood. These conifer trees, even pines, 
needle pines, they find they can grow in pretty hardy environments that it'd be difficult for other plants to involve. And they actually work better than, say, broadleaf trees at sucking pollutants out of the air. But that isn't the end of the story because deciduous trees may be better at actually capturing a bunch of particle-based pollution and then also having the benefit of getting rid of those leaves. Now, leaves and needles and trees can act as a bit like a filter, taking air pollutants out and reducing the exposure of humans to those substances in the air. So if you wanted to investigate which of these trees purify the air most effectively, you have to turn to a botanical garden, or arboretum, a tree collection, to analyse exactly how 11 different trees and their leaves and needles manage to collect all kinds of pollution out of the air. Now, this particular collection of the Gothenburg Botanical Gardens is a bunch of different species, but are all raised in basically the same environmental conditions and actually exposed to the same air pollutants. Now, if you take then the samples of these leaves and these needles, you actually find a lot of pollution inside of them. There are 32 different pollutants to be exact. And they all are bound up in particles of various sizes. Some are gaseous as well. Now, we know that these kind of pollutants can cause problems in humans. That's why we want to look at getting rid of things like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, or PAHs, from the atmosphere. And traffic produces a whole bunch of these from a combustion engine. Now, if you wanted to look at, in particular, these polyaromatic hydrocarbons, PAHs, you would see if you just did a pure chemical analysis, conifers generally absorbed more of those gaseous PAHs than what you would find in other broadleaf trees. Things like a plane tree or an oak, other types of trees that are around that are not obviously conifers. Now, one of the advantages of conifers as well is that they also have leaves in winter, which means that they're actually producing an air purifying effect all year round, which is actually really important for an urban setting. Pollution doesn't take the winter off. Now, the needles actually continue to absorb the air pollution for several years. And this is something amazing that leaves just can't do. I mean, deciduous leaves as well, because broadleaf trees and deciduous leaves, they often fall away. and don't have the same lifespan as a conifer needle. And that lifespan actually is pretty important. It means that the conifers can just plug away the absorbing air pollutant out of the air. Then again, broadleaf trees have just what, what they say, broad leaves. And that means more surface area. More surface area means they're more efficient at cleaning the air of particles. That is pretty important as well. So if you compare and try and balance up all of these things, the different species actually perform differently across the times of the year. When a conifer sheds its needles in autumn, that was probably like the best time to test, so they took samples in the autumn period. Large trees, a broadleaf tree, probably absorb the most particle-bound pollutants, but they're also good at capturing gaseous, non-particle-based PAHs. Now, the thing about all of these leaves and needles is they don't actually break down the pollutants to any great extent, even if the sunlight actually means that they can start to process it. So all you're doing is taking the pollutants out of the air and capturing and putting them into a leaf. 
This has the risk then of creating contaminated soil when those leaves and needles fall onto the ground and decompose. This means that a tree on its own is not a solution to pollution in the air, it's a way of sequestering it, sure, in the form of leaf litter or needles, but it doesn't actually get broken down there. Now, the interesting part is that although it might pose a risk to the soil, the pollutants don't actually appear to impede a tree's ability to make chlorophyll, the photosynthetic process. And if you look in the most polluted areas in the Gotama Garden, you see that the trees there are doing photosynthesis just as well as the trees in the less polluted area. And if you look at the city with even worse air pollution, then they're probably pretty bad as well. So just placing a whole bunch of trees into an area doesn't mean that you're going to magically clean the air of all the pollution present in it. But trees play an important role, as we spoke about earlier, of cooling the environment around it and providing shade and providing a life, providing an ecosystem for creatures to live in, great and small. They can also sequester pollution out of the air and trap it in leaf litter, which is a really important role as well. This research was published in the Journal Ecological Litigators with lead author Karen Pelagel and others from the University of Gothenburg. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Around us and sequestering pollution into the soil, plus ways our atmosphere is also helping sequester all types of nasty air pollution out using complex chemistry. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.